Uh, you ready for the Halloween party? I am. Costumes only, all. Yeah, the only thing that I wasn't sure about was my shirt. And uh, what color shirt does he wear? Blue, like electric blue. So I, I ordered one. I ordered a shirt from a brand I'd never seen because it was like the right color. Mm-hmm. So I tried it on before I left, and it fits pretty good. So you got that. You have your coat. You have the wig. Yep, I'm gonna have to style the wig. But other than that, are you gonna draw the little like throw up? Oh yeah. Any other? I got things the you're... I got the gold buckle, and I'm gonna wear my gray slacks, which his are like tan, like dark tan. But I figure it's close enough. So he'll be rocking the Rick. And then Clive, I'm get, all he needs is a wig, a yellow shirt, and blue jeans. And a patch. Oh, he's, so he, he is going to be evil, Morty. I, th- I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Wow. May, may I ask, what is that? You like that? Yeah, that's a, is, that a, is that a trial run? This is a trial run, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, that's why you're wearing a fucking hat inside. <laughs> so I was wearing a hat. I took it off, and I have bobby pins throughout my whole. If you think head. of like a horror movie, like if a grandma decided to play with like their grandchild and put bobby pins in their hair, but in a very like horror movie kind of way, uh-huh. that's kind of what I'm looking at right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one way to to describe it. I I went to, I so my outfit is Post Malone. And is that for your, is that for your wig? No, I'm not doing a wig. So, what <laughs> so he I'm has, very confused. So his current hairstyle is uh-huh. kind of curly hair. So uh-huh. I'm trying to. I hate wigs. They're scratchy. They're uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna see if I could get my hair to be curly, like his. And I texted the women in my family and said, "This is the guy I want to be. Could we make this happen?" And my aunt said, "I think I could do that. Like, come on over." So I went over to her house today. That's what she did. She sat me down. We tried to put it in rag curls where you basically just take rags and you put, or like you strips of cloth and you uh-huh. try to roll your hair in it. Mine was too short, so she did bobby pins. And this is the end result. Well, think, no, this is the end. I think she's fucking with you. <laughs> she could. <laughs> I might have left and she, my uncle came home. She's like, you she wouldn't take a believe. Did she take she, a picture? We, we did take pictures. Oh, yeah, it's done. It's yeah, over. <laughs> that, is, that is. I thought she was doing it to do me a favor, but she, she is. She's just messing with me. <laughs> Well, she's funny, though, because then she pulled out. She's like, c- 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 hold on, come here. You need some jewelry. And she like was pulling out all this jewelry. Going, all right, maybe uh, here, this necklace will work and this ne- necklace will work. I'm like, is this real gold? <laughs> she's like, well. I can't even look at you. <laughs> all right, go on. I'm listening. <laughs> it's gonna. It's only going to get harder in this podcast yeah, as, yeah. As, as we talk about serious topics. And you're looking at this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, she was trying to give me, like, nice jewelry. I'm like, this is real jewelry. I don't, I'm going to be drunk. I don't want to Break lose. something, right? Yeah, but she gave me some, so I'll be wearing some, some real, real bling, bling. Yeah. and some fake bling. Nice, but, okay. Yeah, so if I pass out, just strip me of my jewelry, and you might be able to make a buck or two. Pawn shops will be seeing you on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you, for the next hour, will be looking at... Oh, man, that is rough. Just hair. Oh, before we also before we start, you know, I like to think that I'm someone who takes the high road a lot of times. Uh-huh. However, I'm also a complex, multifaceted person, so I do like to check out what's going on down on the low road at times. And just to do that, forgive me if for a moment, I'm just going to hop on that low road. Okay. And say, was it one or two episodes ago, we were talking about being sick, and you were talking about how, yo, I, I rarely get sick. I'm just like the pinnacle of human health, and I have I a superhuman immune system. Yeah, uh-huh. And yet, Monday, you, uh-huh. you came back from Ireland on Sunday, uh-huh. and I see you on Monday at the gym, and it's like, Kryler, good to see you. And you responded with just a truly croaky, hey, it's good to see you too. Uh-huh. See you, too. you were ill. However, you refuse to admit you're ill. Uh, you, you like to say, you no, I'm not sick. I just have all the symptoms of someone who's sick. But I, I didn't have a fever. You know, I wasn't weak. I wasn't I bedridden. All I had was a scratchy throat. And did you have the sniffles? 
yeah, I guess I had the sniffles, but I mean, it's so you had a cold. You had no, a cold. no, because like I wasn't like you know, like my wife has been sick for like a week. She's had a fever forever now. Yeah, there know? are different kinds of sicknesses. Yeah, I was like, I could have stayed and done class. You could have because yeah. you're tough, but no, because like because I wasn't sick. <laughs> yeah, like I I am kind of dealing with a little bit of a cold where I have a slightly sore uh-huh. throat. And a little bit so, of so a runny nose. You saw me the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Was I, I sick? No, but the definition <laughs> of being sick doesn't mean you're sick no, forever. No, no, but but I wasn't like, well, if you're sick forever, you're just dead, right? No. Um, no, I, I, you know, if I have a scratch or throw a sniffles, then it's fine. You know, it's no different to me. To me, my symptoms right. were more like an, like a, somebody with allergies than somebody who was sick. Yeah, but I mean, it, the only thing you'd be allergic to, though, in this case is, is just good health. Um, <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> I we're, just gonna stay, we're gonna stay here the whole hour and talk uh, about this. <laughs> we, I, I just think we have to. Last episode was about me and my issues with rolling a certain way. This one's about you and your refusal to just admit being sick. No, I, like I said, my symptoms are more like of somebody that has like allergies than somebody who no, sick. someone who has a cold. No, because oh, like God. so, like you have a cold, you're out for a week. Not necessarily. They're different degrees of colds. <laughs> like I have, what I'm experiencing now, I'm not allergic to anything. Uh-huh. I'm just, when I get a certain uh, certain bug in me, I just start to have some symptoms of a cold. Have right. you ever taken, all right, this, we're getting nowhere here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand, I'm, this, just, this will be the hill I die on. <laughs> I just don't know, what, did someone at some point tell you if you, if you ever admitted to an illness? Or do you... <laughs> Here's what it is. You think if you ever admit to being sick, someone will try to usurp you at the gym. Oh, no. That's I, what it is. No, I it, get it, man. Like, That's when I'm sick, I'm really sick. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit that. Like, when I'm sick, I am, like, it's an, it's a serious issue. You're like the alcoholic who's like, I'm, I, no, I'm not a, if I were an alcoholic, I would be shitting myself and vomiting right now. It's like, well, no, because an alcoholic isn't always a mess. <laughs> I think we need to move away from this road. <laughs> This was a horrible road. <laughs> All right. So getting back to important things, things that people actually come to this show for. Today is episode today. Ooh, oh, hold on before we get into this. Thank you. I was about to say something. You were raising your hand to point at me. Yeah. This is just jujitsu. I am your host, Andrew Desimone, here with my co-host, Croyler Gracie. By the way, the whole high road, low road thing, mm-hmm. I can't even take you seriously with that hair, man. <laughs> That's right. I am I'm hanging on to the gutter of the low road right now with this haircut. I can't I can't get past that. I can't get past the hair, so I guess I guess it is what it is. Just wait till you see me Saturday. It's gonna be so much so much worse. Better. Tattoos <laughs> on my face. Uh, great. Yeah, it's gonna be really good. We'll take pictures and we'll post them on the Instagram so people can see. Uh, what we're getting up to this weekend and be the judge of who who has the best Halloween costume yeah uh, so yes this is ju- just jujitsu today's episode we are back to another BJJ Giants who are we doing today? we're doing Count Coma yes uh, Mitsuyo Maeda correct so, to, the best, to the best of my ability to say his name yeah and we should preface this whole episode by saying we will butcher probably a lot of names. Anytime someone yeah. with a Japanese name comes up, we'll do our best. Right. But yeah, if if you are more versed in the in the pronunciation, we're sorry. You're. What do you expect from a guy who's wearing fifty bobby pins in his hair right now? Fifty? You have fifty? No, I don't know. I didn't keep count. I mean, it's probably close to that. It could be. I mean, <laughs> I I my my scalp is bleeding. <laughs> so we are. Going to do this episode on Count Coma, which in Portuguese, is that Count Combat? That's what that's what it translates to, yeah. That's That sounds like a, just a badass version of Count Jocula. That's one way of putting it, yeah. Are you familiar with Count Jocula? Is that something that you... It's a cereal, right? Type of cereal. All right, we're yeah. good. So, he has, is someone we've referenced before in the show. Right. To the point where, when I mentioned, let's, hey, we should do an episode on this, you kind of like... Dude, I think we might have done one on it. Yeah. Which you had me for a second because I yeah. remember us talking about it. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about him during the Jigoro Kano episode. Because we've done a Jigoro Kano episode. We haven't done one? We haven't. No. Damn. No. You're I'm losing my mind. Well, we've talked about both those characters, but... Characters. People. Uh, but it was in... I know we didn't. Carlos. 
anytime we've done BJJ Giants, I think they've come up at some point. Okay. Well, we'll have to do um, Kano at some point as well. Yes. So if we're starting off with Count Coma, mm-hmm. if Carlos and Elio are, would you say the fathers of jiu-jitsu? Would he be the grandfather of jiu-jitsu? I would say... I would say Carlos Sinelio are the father of modern Brazilian jiu-jitsu, of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? Which to the Japanese is modern jiu-jitsu. Okay. And then he would be the father. He, my, so, um, that's kind of a, that's a loaded statement. Um, it's a little tough to yeah, sum but, it up in that phrase. Yeah. Because I think, I think the, the way people have to look at it is when we do Jigoro Kano's episode, we'll get into the details of how he developed his style of jiu-jitsu, which was called judo, right? Um, but Kano, um, Kano started the Kodokan. That was his school, and he created a ton of great, great fighters, which we'll go into a little bit of details when we go into Count Koma's um, story a little bit more. But one of his students was Count Koma, and Koma uh, was an emissary for to, to prove the efficiency of Jigoro Kano's jiu-jitsu, judo, right? And he was also tasked with, eventually he was tasked with colonizing certain countries, but uh, he fought a lot and and he, he influenced a lot of different styles. He influenced a lot of different parts of the world. Um, the, he, the heaviest influence was the, him teaching his uh, jiu-jitsu, his Japanese jiu-jitsu, judo, to Carlos and Elio. And then they took that and then they, they advanced it into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That's the glue or that's the bridge yeah, that brings so, him into so that. So to me, he was, the, he was the, means of, the means to transport the knowledge from Kano to my grandfather and Carlos. Okay. Not so, discrediting him, but sure. that's how I look at him as a bridge. Knowing that he's the guy who taught Carlos and then Carlos in return taught Elio... If we go back and just look at Count Coma a little bit, or mm-hmm. Mitsuyu Maeda, mm-hmm. born in Japan, 1878. Yeah, he was born in the very, very north of Japan. Okay. Small guy. Uh, he yeah. was only 5'5". Five, five. 150, 160 pounds. Yeah. It's, I read that he tried sumo out for yeah. a little bit. He was, um, he was, he, I think he was like middle school. I believe he was, he tried for sumo and he just, he was just too small for it. Right. I mean, he is about, he's my height, just has maybe 20 pounds on me. Which, uh, side note, the, the sumo community in Japan, especially back then, they were revered, right? They were like, they were seen as these, these iconic fighters, these heroes almost. They weren't samurai. They weren't, you know, the, the true like battle tested heroes, but they were these iconic figures are very important very prestigious role to be like a sumo champion like a physical manifestation of just yeah. manliness just power and just, yeah power just raw power yeah that makes sense yeah so he didn't excel at that understandably because i can only imagine if i tried to do something like yeah, that you know i i i i thought about it like like because because you know like imagine imagine you go to to try a sport anything rugby right you're a smaller guy you go try rugby and then they're, they're like you're not doing rugby you're too mm. small and like no but I, i'm quick and i'm agile and they're like yeah, you can go ahead and try it but we're not going to help you because you're just you're just too small like it's easy to fail then right <coughs> you know so I, I wonder how much of that took place mm-hmm. you know with the the sumo the sumo schools i don't know if they're called schools you know they may be called something different but uh the sumo academies how much would an instructor who's trying to build a prestigious, you know, school with all these great, 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 massive men, how much time would they really invest or would they even allow somebody small like him to try? So it's, it's hard to say if he failed because he was not, you know, skilled or if he was just small or if it was because lack of instruction, he wasn't supported, you know? Yeah, that, that is I something mean, that I, I, I could entirely see. Yeah, and I, and I don't know that anybody would, would know. Yeah. Well, you have that. You used to have that poster in the gym when you walk in. There is a sign, and it's like when you're on roller coasters. It says, "If you're under this marker, 
I won't help you. I don't and, think. And, and it was really, it scared me away at first. But then after a while, I talked to you and you took that I never, down. I never had that sign. Uh, I don't know. Because I think of myself as a small guy. <laughs> yeah. And I think of my guy, I think of myself as someone who has nice hairdo right now. It's not good. All right. So he's tra- <laughs> he tries out sumo. He ultimately switches to judo because it started to have, there's a growing reputation. I think he was 18. Yeah. It sounded like it was right around there. Um, yep. Switches over, and in 84, he goes to Tokyo University, uh, joins the Kodokan Judo Institute, who we talked about, the founder right. is... Right, Kano, yeah. Yeah, and this would probably be a good time to just touch on who he is a little bit and what the the prestigious nature of so that Kodokan Kano, is. Kano was... Um, to keep it super simple, because eventually I think we'll do an episode on Kano. Kano um, learned Japanese jiu-jitsu when it was no longer allowed. He rebranded it um, through a series of events um, into judo. He eventually opened Kodokan, which was his school. It was an accredited school. And he started teaching his version of Japanese jiu-jitsu, which was judo. And uh, he called it judo because it was the only way to get accepted and approved. Um, Kano was a firm believer in in um, live training. So not a lot of drilling, but rather live practice, lots of throws, lots of sweeps, fast submissions, everything that kind of we know as judo today. Um, Kodokan to this day, to me, is one of the most important martial arts institutes buildings meccas in the world because um how it was developed and the honor and prestige it would take to be part of kodokan um is still incredible not not anyone can come into kodokan and just train for the day like you you have to they have to accept you um i was actually just in ireland and one of the guys that was there said he visited kodokan and he wanted to train and I think he was like a, a purple or brown belt and they told him no. And he said he just kept coming back every day and asking because he figured the worst thing he can say is no. And he just goes into something else with his day. And he said it wasn't like I think three or four days in that they finally were like, fine, you can train for the day. But, you know, they didn't take it easy on him and he was not a judo guy, you know. But Kodokan was essentially a, to me, growing up, um, listening to the stories, Kodokan to me was a temple. You want it to be part of that temple. You have to show your worthiness. You, you clean. You instruct those people that know less than you. You accept every criticism. You look to improve. And you basically dedicate yourself to that temple. So um, especially the first the first and second wave of students from Shibaro Kano, they were all excellent, excellent um, grapplers, fighters, and, and so on. What was the view of the people that you were growing up with of Kodokan and that uh, that part of the heritage of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Did people view it in very high esteem? I, I think there was a little bit of both. Of course, there was the pride that, you know, uh, Kimura asked my grandfather to teach at Kodokan his form of judo, which was Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and my grandfather took him down. So there's a little bit of pride in that that we had something that they wanted, right? So there's a little bit of pride there, a little bit of bias, of course, um, but but never in a disrespectful manner in it that we didn't believe, we didn't understand the honor and the prestige that came with Kodokan. You know, it, it's to me, it's like Gracie Maita in Rio. You know, it, it you may not like it, you may not associate with the team, you may have rivalries against it, but Gracie Maita is where Gracie Jiu-Jitsu started, right? You know, and then uh, you just have to respect those things. Mm. Yeah, we'll do an episode on Kano because not only did he uh, influence martial arts a ton in like technique and the way people do it, but it sounds like he was also just a philosopher and had Absolutely. this whole lifestyle that he yeah. built around. Gino. Yeah, it's it's he he was an incredible character for sure. So we come back to Maeda, and he is starting off at Kodokan, mm-hmm. and he is first paired by. Uh, Kano with a teacher who was a smaller guy. He yep. saw him. Mm-hmm. He had him. He was a brutal instructor. I forget his name now. Um, I can't remember either. But, but he, um, um, from from books I've read, he was one of these guys that didn't take a lot of students. Didn't take on a lot of students. In fact, 
Kano appointed him to Maeda or Maeda to him, it wasn't like he just, this guy just, you know, took Maeda under his wing. I think he was kind of like an assignment, like this is your okay. job to to deal with this guy. And he was like, uh, to, to my understanding, he was a brutal instructor and he would purposefully make sure that every sparring session, every training session was a very miserable, very painful, excruciatingly so session. Which makes sense because I read somewhere that Maeda would treat veterans, new people, this mm-hmm. all the same way, yeah. and would just train with them and throw them Everything. as if it was like real combat. Everything rolls downhill. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And he had a. It wasn't because he was vindictive, but it, it mentioned that he just said it was kind of a way to. Sh- he was showing respect to those people like you can handle this and he didn't want it some people interpreted that as just a negative way maybe him bullying them or trying to well, weed people that, out. that was something that was early on just that was very common too even in brazilian jiu-jitsu that was very common where if i grappled with you i should not hold back because the holding back would be disrespectful to you oh so me the new person i'm slowing and limiting you down correct so okay. if i hold you if i hold back i'm you know it's disrespectful the problem is a lot of people saw that as an excuse to be an asshole and bully people and and took years for the brazilian just community to get rid of that mentality and it's still there in some schools i'm sure but um no but that same principle that same philosophy passed on early on to brazilian jiu-jitsu as well okay so he starts off with this guy and yeah he was um um, uh, Kano had I forget he had a name for the, for like his first wave of black belts. Oh, it was something like because Como would be the second wave, right? Como would be second wave. Okay, yeah. but there was but Kano named he had a nickname for his first guys, kind of like Donner has like the Donner Thass squad, right? He had a name for his first wave of black belts. I forget what it was. It was something cheesy like heavenly fighters or, or, or god fighters or something like that. And okay. then uh, Kano was like second to that. Okay. So he trains with this guy. And then it also I also saw he met a guy, Soishiro Sataki, mm-hmm. who, as I was reading, it mentioned, there kept... There were a few names that would always come up when it would say this person was. I think part they were. Of the I think they were. I think they were like good friends. They became very good friends, I believe. Yeah, they traveled together, and a lot of people would credit this Sataki with helping found Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Also, yeah. Well, they both ended up in Brazil in seventeen, nineteen seventeen, nineteen sixteen, ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Maeda was the the heavy influence there. Okay, so he meets he meets this guy. Uh, they. In 1904, with a couple other students, finally they went all over the place, man. Yeah, they go to they start off. They go to New York City. They are essentially just demonstrate having demonstrations in like, different areas. Because remember, the goal was to show the efficiency of judo. Right? They weren't trying to settle in Japan, in, in New York City, and open up Japanese community there. Well, it was, I, I liked too how, and I didn't know this. They as they're trying to spread this throughout the world they had one of the guys from Kodokan met with Ulysses S. Grant oh yeah and did some demonstrations and then like the all these big figures they were constantly going throughout yeah Roosevelt Roosevelt was 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 influenced by him too eventually yeah I saw that later down the the, the road I think 1920 1920, 25 something like that yeah so when they're doing these demonstrations what's a typical what do they mean by demonstrations well it went from everything from self-defense um to to throws and katas so judo back then had a lot of katas um which kata is just a a, it's kind of like shadow boxing it's a way to practice a certain move or a chain of movements um in a way that you can do it by yourself and still be you know physically proficient as you move you can't do that in jiu-jitsu because you need that other person but in karate and taekwondo it's very very common to see a kata in boxing you see shadow boxing who are, who are you punching you know, there's somebody mm-hmm. there but it still gets your body moving the right way and it's a good way to train yourself so they would do katas they would do um self-defense situations they would do uh, sometimes they would do demos with each other. So like in the case of Maeda, when his friend was with him, they would often throw each other. Um, 
or one of them will be the person throwing, the person will be falling, maybe they take turns. Um, to to at one point in time, eventually Maeda started doing uh, exhibition shows where he would take anybody that would want to fight him and, and he would fight that person and, and, and show and truly show under pressure that their system worked. <laughs> yeah, man, I can't. Like, we need to keep talking because if, if there's silence, I'm going to have to laugh. <laughs> when you were talking a second ago, I thought, I'm impressed. He's, he's had a straight face this whole time. He has no, a, I'm, I'm a trying to, like, focus on the topic at hand. Right. <laughs> so they're doing the demonstrations. And then, like you mentioned, they start getting into challenges and more yeah. uh, attention grabbing things where they start there are a lot of wrestlers that start in to america compete in america yeah. yeah i think the first encounter with with wrestlers was um after brazil i think it was 20 22 23 maybe my dates are quite mis- mixed a little bit there when they went to brazil he, no because because no because coma actually went to America and then he went to like Europe for a minute and then he was in Cuba, Central America for Cuba, a while Brazil and I think he did a brief visit in America and I think that's when he encountered the wrestlers yeah because that's kind of an important point in Maida's life okay um, how so so one of the th- one of the things that one of the biggest claims to fame that Maida had before dying was that he had over 2,000 matches um, he didn't claim he won all of them but he had 2,000 matches under his belt, whatever you want to call it, um, and and that gave him uh, in Brazil they called him the most dangerous man. Right, it was a guy who fought two thousand times. I mean, that's crazy to think about. Um, but when he came to America the second time, he did this exhibition match in a I believe it was like a naval base or like some sort of military city, heavy military city. I, I forget where. Um, but in that city, he, this was arranged with the military and everybody could come in and watch. And his friend, um, his friend threw him a bunch of times, right? Um, he was the, the Uki, he was the dummy. He was the person being thrown, um, to the point where they started taking on live challenges and the wrestlers came in, the football players came in, the big, tough, burly guys. Oh uh, yeah. I read about this. Yeah. And, and this is where. Um, I think it was a, a mistake in in Count Coma's mind, and I think because of his ego. This is me speaking on the on an ego of a person I've never met. Right? Um, his his friend took the challenges on, and uh, his friend was going against I think a football player or a wrestler. I think it was a football football player, player. Um, and he he couldn't take this guy down. Right? He was very very athletic probably much larger and he tried to do what's called tomoinage which in judo it's it's falls in the category of suicide throws where you essentially fall to your back to perform a, a takedown and um when he when he tried to do it, it you know they they saw it as a victory to the football player because under the rules whoever falls first loses right because that was the rules that they had in play um and and I think and then then eventually Coma stepped in and Coma did a lot of the 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 remaining of the matches with the wrestlers and the football players. Coma did that, and I'm sure he struggled because you know, it's a different approach. These guys had some training; they they fought everything not to fall to their back. So I'm sure he struggled. I don't know how each individual match or how many matches he had, how they went down, but I think from that moment forward, Coma was much less forgiving in his matches, even though the quote-unquote embarrassing situation didn't happen with him directly he was for sure not letting that happen again yeah i i when i read about that there were they kept they referenced new york times oh do they really art the new, new york times oh, article yeah. and so it was fairly i didn't know that because like because these stories are stories i heard in brazil so like oh. I, you know the new whole new york times is probably left out because i don't remember that but that's that's good hey that's good yeah so there were people who recounted that story and it it made them look uh it it wasn't it didn't make them look like idiots but it just said oh they were no match for like the big bruisers and these these big football players yeah so yeah i'm sure he came out of that thinking all right we're gonna have to right we we have to uh, rethink how we do this and and if anything if anything just reinforced the whole belief that i cannot hold back even with beginners right right and what am I doing wrong here? Right. Uh, I have to, have to tailor this to right. 
to fit this new world of people that we're, we're kind of starting to meet with. Yeah. 1908 to about 1912, it looks like he... Cuba, right? He, yes, he goes to Havana. First, he like runs over... Yeah. Not runs. He, he goes to France for just a short period of time. Right. Goes to Havana, spends some time in Mexico, and starts to, it seems like maybe turn into... A showman. A sh- yes, a showman gets a business aspect going where they are having two-a-day wrestling acts that are drawing attention, and he's having challenges of $50 to anyone who couldn't throw him, and, or that anyone that he could not throw, or $250 to anyone he could throw. And so this is where it's more like a circus or spectacle right. of now we're not necessarily here to teach we i guess we're teaching but we are trying to draw people in and well it comes down to like this is like it's like a super like fine line right every every martial arts instructor eventually falls prey to this you know people become instructors of any kind because they care for the subject at hand and they want to help other people learn what they know Right. That's really why a teacher happens, why a mentor or an instructor or coach. It's because they want to see other people learn what they learn so they too can be successful. The problem is oftentimes it does not pay well. I mean, you look at high school teachers, they don't get paid well either. You know, So they all fall prey to, we need income. How do I do that? Um, and, and for a traveling man, he traveled all the time, especially for back then, right? <laughs> you know, today is easy. You can hop on a plane, be across the world, but... But back then, traveling across the world was traveling across the world. Yeah. <laughs> so for a guy who's traveling all the time, how can you support yourself if, if, if there's not a steady source of income? turns out that doing what you're good at, which is fighting, under a, in, in a way that brings attention to your sport, which was your mission, right? It was to, to sell this martial art. And you can make money because it's a guaranteed win. It's like a triple win. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I get it. I get what he did it. Yeah. So you're saying if we were living 110 years ago, would we see you in a in a circus? Would we see what would your circus name be? Oh, I'm not saying that I would be in a circus. There's other ways of making money. But if you're traveling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you're right. When you explain it that way, I don't I don't see a negative aspect to that. It makes sense. I'm just thinking it. You you like to travel, so I do. So you're an entertainer in this circus. What is it like, Croiler? I, I have no idea. I'm not Croiler the killer. That's too easy. Yeah. Um, the I don't know nothing. You, you nothing. don't. You, I feel like as a kid, you probably drew pictures and I'm not. I'm of, not like <laughs> I'm not. I, I, I'm not a huge huge entertainer. Croiler the barbarian brawler. Croiler the man of many mysteries. Nothing. None of those stick. Nothing sparks an interest. No. Okay. Well, I guess maybe you just would have uh, starved. You would have starved. <laughs> you'd have, you'd have stood in an alley, and when people walked by, went, "Hey, hey, you want me to show you how to wrestle a little bit?" Yeah, I'll, no, f- thanks, I'll fight man. you for money. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so he he's he's starting to make a little money, starting to garner some attention, mm-hmm. and then he and the people he's traveling with start to work their way south. Yep, and eventually, in 1914, they end up in Brazil. Yep. Now, they get here, they start doing more challenge fights and in 1916 he finds uh maeda finds himself working for essentially a circus which has a business partner by the name of gastao gracie gaston gracie yeah my my great-grandfather yeah your great-grandfather father of elio and carlos so he's in i think it was belem is it billing para where's that in brazil very north of brazil Okay, is it a, like a big town? Belém is a, the capital of Pará, I believe. Um, Pará is a state. Okay. Um, so it's probably, especially for back then, it's probably the biggest town in the state. So he, he he's doing that, and then what happens? Does Gestao say, hey, I'd like you to train my son? Does Car- Carlos come to a show and see him? From what I heard, so, so this is where, like, you know, history has always been handed down through stories right but but then eventually we came up to writing <laughs> you know um i've read that it was one of the, it was a business deal where 
Gaston offered an incentive, a financial incentive for him in the business to teach his son. I've heard it from within the family that it was a, uh, that Coma needed a favor. He was having um, immigration issues. Um, basically, when the reason why Coma went to Brazil was not only was his troop traveling south, but he was he was mandated by the Japanese government to create a community, a Japanese community in Brazil. Because there's a lot of migration at this time yes. from Japan to Brazil. And to other places, to America, um, also to Russia. Uh, we, we, when we talked about the Sambo, did we talk about the Sambo episode? Did we do a Sambo episode? Not a Sambo episode, but we talked about yeah, Sambo where, bit, where, yeah, where we talked about how you know there's Japanese emissaries to Russia and stuff. Essentially, Japan, when they opened, they had a, Japan had a closed borders forever. It was one of the last countries to open its borders to trading, to immigration, to migration and so on and when they opened their borders to, to allow for the americans to come in so they could trade and do business they essentially sent people out they said you know if people are going to come in we're going to go out to them as well um and coma was 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 settled with the mission of creating settlement in brazil him and him and the other guy um i forget his name now um but uh, to from Growing up, my understanding was that he was having some sort of immigration issue or uh, difficulty, whether it was staying in the country or managing money in the country, him being a foreigner. And that's that's where uh, my great-grandfather came in and he either offered like a helping hand or helped smooth things over. I'm not sure. Um, Growing up, that was the story I heard. Was that it was a, a he had a diff- some sort of immigration issue, difficulty, and my grandfather helped smooth things over. And as a as a a return, as a you know, I scratch your back. He scratched my great grandfather's back by teaching Carlos how to protect himself through the books. I've read of the books where they say it was essentially like a financial business incentive. You know, I'll give you more percentage of the business if this happens. Carlos was just a kid at the time. He's only 14. Yeah. Yeah. He was young. Did the family have any martial arts experience or no. interests before that time? No, but remember Carlos and Ellie were both, actually all four of the, the, the Gracie brothers were all very, very small. And it, I mean, think about like your dad, right? If you had a kid, you, you don't protect your kid, right? Um, if Gaston saw his kids all small and frail and then they see he sees Count Coma, a man with two thousand matches, who is also small looking, and not maybe not frail because he was pretty jacked, but smaller guy. He might say, "Hey, whatever this guy's doing is clearly working. Maybe he can share, you know." And 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 I, I do think if we look at it in the sense that judo was a almost a state secret in Japan, right? It was not shared with foreigners. Um, it was not very commonly shared with foreigners, let's put it that way. For him to just willingly give up his teachings to some Brazilian guy, I think that there was more than just, hey, I'll pay you more. Right. <laughs> you know? Carlos didn't train with him for a very long time either, did he? Because No, I think he'd only trained with him like three or four years. Which is wild to think. I've been training with you for four years. Correct. And to think that I could, that I'm at the point where I could just go and start my, a whole new wing or a whole new world of jujitsu. It's weird to think. Well, life is different, right? I mean, now you have to, you, you work a job, you live alone. So you come home, take care of your house. You devote an hour training a day. You work in your podcast a couple hours a week. And then that fills up your time. That's it. You don't have any time for anything else. Back then people could literally dedicate their whole lives because family would support them or that was just what they did, you know? Um, it would be far more difficult for somebody with four years of training to change a sport or a martial art or any field really today because there's so there's so much that the, the lifestyle has shifted. It's sure. no longer the same. Yeah. You're right. If I was alive, then I probably would have started and re- revolutionized a martial art. Thank you. Uh, now, <laughs> what's the difference when Carlos learns from Maeda and then Maeda him part ways and Carlos starts going on his own? What's like the main split? What's the difference 
between the Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the Japanese jiu-jitsu he learned at from that Aida. stage there was no difference at okay. that stage Carlos was teaching Japanese jiu-jitsu because remember Carlos only had four years with this art three or four years with this art how much can he adapt and change on his own as he's learning it's very very tough you know my belief is that at that stage it was it, he was essentially a mirror copy of Maeda and it wasn't until the introduction of Ilya Gracie and his inability, his physical inability to perform certain techniques and having to adapt for himself that the change started to happen. When that, when that moment happened, it changed from judo or Japanese jiu-jitsu to something else. And um, Carlos, and then Carlos saw an opportunity for, to transform. And that's where in him and Ilya put his, their minds together and they changed it. And we've talked about this before, but just for people who haven't listened to our, the whole catalog of podcasts, what, what were some of the distinguishing factors that they then started to do that made people say, oh, this is different from... Well, the, the idea was, you know, if, if it, the, the idea, and maybe they didn't even word it this way back then, but the idea is techniques should be so efficient that regardless of physicality or physical ability anybody should be able to perform a technique on anyone else and have the technique work regardless of physical attributes. And and that was the big change. They part ways, Maeda left for Europe, came back to Brazil. Correct. And then he stays, he becomes a citizen, right? Yeah. Brazil? Yeah, he becomes naturalized, yeah. He, he, takes start, a, he takes a different name. I think it's Octavio or Octavio or something like that. Yeah, starts to slow down, doesn't have as many large public fi- fights, starts a family. Now, I, I read also that in this quote-unquote slowdown period, he fought a, what do you call someone who does capoeira? Capoeirian? Capoeirista. Capoeirista. Yeah. Or a ca- capoeirian. Sure. That works. However it makes you feel better. Yeah. Uh, he he fought, fought one of those guys who... They agreed to terms, and the guy was allowed to have a knife in the fight. Yeah, have you heard of this? Yeah, yeah. That that's, that's a, a huge story. Yeah, it's what? It's a huge story. Yeah. It, do you know more details than me? What I read, it just said the guy had a knife, and Maeda won pretty quickly. I'm like, no well, more details. That's it. Thank you. Well, oh, it's gonna sound horrible, but like capoeira is. It was a style of fighting in Brazil that originated with the slaves that came from Africa, right? They could not learn to fight or continue to fight under while they were remained slaves. So they started dancing, and the idea was to to practice fighting through dancing. Now, uh, like if we talk about physics, capoeira will deliver some of the most devastating kicks uh, out there and strikes because they build a lot of momentum and energy behind them. So strictly, you know, striking power for striking power. There's very few arts that can keep up with capoeira. The problem becomes practicality, right? If you cannot generate the, the momentum through the dance, then your kicks have no power because their kicks are all unorthodox, right? Mm-hmm. Where most orthodox striking, boxing, Muay Thai, uh, karate, you, you, you name it, it all generates from your hips, hip power where they're generating their movement, their power through entire body movement, lots of spinning, lots of turning, which is why they were more powerful because they're using their entire body. But the moment that she hits the fan and you need to do that and somebody does not allow you to use your entire body for something, then the, the bridge between theory and practicality widens and, and it becomes a very silly method of fighting, intimidating, but ultimately not practical, which is why it didn't matter if you had a knife or not. I, I haven't seen capoeira with a knife. It, Me neither, which it was probably meant to seem as some sort of threat so that he could not close that distance mm-hmm. so that he could continue to move how he wanted to move. Where Coma with 1,999 fights under his belt <laughs> probably was had a huge fight IQ and was very aware that, hey, if I close the distance, he cannot generate enough power to hurt me. The only thing I have to worry about is the knife. So if I close the distance, focus on the knife, he's done, which is probably how it played out. Okay. Towards the end of his life, he continues teaching judo. Uh, it looked like he 
mainly started teaching to a lot of Japanese immigrants, children, mm-hmm. and then uh, did that for a while. In 1941, dies of kidney disease. Now, his legacy is a huge, tremendous contributions to where martial arts is today. Know that, obviously, techniques and teaching he passed on, but then some kind of philosophical views and ways of viewing fighting. I saw Henzo talking about his philosophy on specifically like the nature of fighting mm-hmm. that was influenced by Maeda. And he talks about the stages of fights and, uh, or a physical combat and how he could be bro- could break that down into specific phases. He talks about the striking phase, grappling phase, ground phase, and kind of some other versions. And it was the smart fighter's task to keep that fight located in the phase of combat that best suits their strength. Absolutely. So for specifically jujitsu, a lot of people who train that, it's going to be the ground phase. It's going to be grappling phase. Yeah, It's going to be the closing of the distance to avoid strikes. It's going to be focused on heavy takedown ability, whether it's judo or wrestling based to get it to the ground to where they can excel, to where they can drown the opponent. And those phases of fights, those those went on through. I mean, I know we've talked about them on here. I think. I mean, they're still around today. You know, um, if you look at like Saint Pierre, and and the reason why I'll, I'll mention Saint Pierre is because he's one well known, two, uh, a very great example of of this fight IQ situation, right? So Saint Pierre is not the greatest striker. He's not the greatest grappler. He's not even the greatest jujitsu fighter. However, it's very tough to beat him because anywhere that you excel, he will change it to an area that he is better than you. If he fights a great striker, he will take you down because his wrestling, while may not be the best wrestling, it's better than the striker's wrestling. And then he'll take his chances on the ground with submissions. If he fights a jiu-jitsu specialist, he will never get into a ground fight with a jiu-jitsu specialist. He will avoid a takedown and keep it on his feet because his striking, while again, may not be the best, it is better than whoever he's, you know, whoever the jiu-jitsu specialist is. So, yeah, I mean, the the, the concepts and, and the philosophies that Coma exhibited back then are still very heavily applicable today. To close out, if Count Coma were alive today... Uh-huh. What do you think his opinion would be of jujitsu where it is now? What kind of jujitsu? You mean competitive jujitsu? You mean jujitsu teaching? Are you looking for self defense jujitsu? Uh, I would MMA, say ju- you know jujitsu like, in the mainstream, how it's viewed by pop culture, or the man, like, like, man on the street. So, like, like, are you talking about like sports so, jujitsu? So, or a lot like of MMA? it would probably be. MMA and um, I think some I, and also some sports. Jiu-jitsu. I think he'd be very. I think he'd be proud of the fact that. Remember, when he was sent off by Kano, the idea was to spread it right. While uh, Brazilian just may be a derivative of what he knew, at the end of the day, through the Gracies, he accomplished his mission. Right through the Gracies, he was able to spread. Hit, at least heavily influenced the spread, uh, the spreading of jujitsu around the world. So I think he'd be proud of that. Um, I think he would also be a little bit. Um, I think he'd be a little bit upset about the the quality of jujitsu everywhere, um, because as a man who basically came up through Kodokan, where it was this temple, is almost this religious training regimen. Um, what we see today is so far removed. It's a lot of just make it work, just, you know, force it, you know, and which is not what jujitsu is about. I think he'd be a little bit upset about that, but I think he would be smart enough to understand that the reason why that happens is because anytime production increases, quality drops, you know, especially at a, at a very fast pace. You know, if it was a slow incremental pace, if you just took a hundred years to get where it's at today, the quality all around would be much better than it is today. If he was alive today, which episode of our podcast do you think would be his favorite besides this one? I think he would like the 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 system versus the the creative whatever. Oh, the artist versus the strategist. Yes, because I think I think he was very much a strategist clearly thinking take the fight to where your opponent is not as good as you 
but I think he was also very he had to be very creative as he traveled around the world and encountered different obstacles or different difficulties. I think you'd appreciate that. If he was alive today, who do you think he'd like better, you or me? With those, whatever the hell they are on your head, probably me. I mean, I mean, if you that's didn't, ob- that's the obvious. Answer. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't have those fucking bobby pins, then maybe you because you'd be closer to his size. Well, you think he'd like the? He probably would like the role playing that we do. I don't think so. Oh God, are you meaning to this to be a segue? No, it, it would be a fantastic segue, but <laughs> but we have other things to to uh, take care of today. Okay. All right, good. <laughs> We're going to transition to the listener mailbag. Ba 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 with the listener mailbag. <laughs> I, I wish I could have. I wish I could have recorded that with your body pins and your head bob. And I'm going to try that again. <laughs> don't don't try it again because I won't keep it straight. Could you, all right, could you just do that? Just like that. I don't, think, like I don't just think I could do that. I bet you could. Da, 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 da. I like how you're trying to force me to do it. I don't da, think I could do that. Here we go with the listener email bag. Today we're getting one from Adam. All right, so Adam says, could you do an episode? Maybe not an episode. Sorry, Adam. Maybe could we just do, we're just going to answer this you're question. Answer it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, about training with injuries. I recently had an injury to my neck and wanted to keep training. Oh, so I suspect your answer is going to be, you're done with jujitsu. That's it. That's it. That's it. Sorry, just, Adam. Just hang up your belt and you're done. Hey, you had a good go. Thanks for trying jujitsu, but that's it now. That's it. Episode's over. That's it. First is why did you get injured, right? So, so the before we answer, how do you deal with it? The, the question is, is, how do you prevent it, right? So, why did you get injured? Was it a rough training partner? Was the lack of proper education, meaning your coach, your instructor, did not help you avoid situations where you could get hurt? Um, was this a freak accident? Was it a mix? You know. Whatever it is, you need to address it. If it's somebody who is too rough or too careless or too reckless, that's not somebody that's worth training with. If it's proper, improper instruction, you know, your, your coach did not explain the dangers of a technique and somebody hurt you because of it. Might be time to talk to your coach or find a different coach. Um, if it's a freak accent that you can't account for, right? Uh, accents will happen. They could happen in your bathroom. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to kind of, you know, figure that out first. And then the second layer to that is, okay, so you're injured, right? Here's what everybody, you know, if they've been changes for a while, the first thing that they ask is how fast can I get back into it? The reality is you can back into it the next day. It may not be recommended or good for longevity, but you can come back a couple hours later, right? I, I've trained through injuries. It's not the smart thing to do, but it can be done. So the better question is, is how do I efficiently continue my training, right? Um, let's say you have a neck injury that prevents you from rolling. Does that mean for the next six months you sit at home, become a couch potato and, and that? No, you can still come to class and drill techniques, find somebody who's going to be respectful with your neck, drill only the techniques that you can drill. If you can't be a nookie or a dummy for somebody to practice on, then don't be, but you can still train right if it's an injury that literally hinders your ability to even perform the technique on somebody else right your neck is really screwed up and you can't even do eight techniques you can't even drill on on people then the question becomes how can you work your mind how can you train yourself to see the subtleties of the technique to ask questions about the technique to work through it in your head because visualization and active mental engagement will help you get better as long as you're continuously working on them. Um, you know, if you can't do that and you can't drill and you just want to sit at home and drink yourself to feel better, then, then you, you, that's, you know, that's your choice, but you just isn't going to get better. Um, one of my main training partners, my, actually my, my main training partner, how he, he blew his knee out when he was a blue belt it was one of those freak accidents. There's nothing really much that could have been done differently. Um, and, and he was out for like eight months. Um, 
he came back. He would only drill with me. He would only roll with me. He didn't trust anybody else. But when he came back at the end of those eight months, he came back better than when he left. However, he was very diligent. He was at every class, even with a cast after his surgery. He was in every class. He would sit down on the floor. He would watch the class. He would ask questions. When it was time to roll, where he could have left because there was no reason to be there anymore, he would actually stay until all the rolling was done, and then he would leave. So um, he was very, very mentally engaged. He was asking the right questions. He was trying to understand the whys and the hows, um, and he came back better. So it, it can be done. You know, you just have to be disciplined. Yeah, and if you're listening right now, how Dr. How, you better be careful because I'll injure you if you ever cross me. All right, that's 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 my promise to you. Wow, I, I mean, oh, I'm no. like, I was I just felt like <laughs> I just felt the blood rush out of my face, and I immediately wow regretted all that. Yeah, oh, I mean, God. like I'm gonna. I, I mean, I, I have nothing else to say. Can I just watch? Can I watch wow. next day? Friday? Are you gonna be there Friday? Oh, what have I done? <laughs> oh no! It will be next week though, because he won't he won't listen to it. Right? So it'll be like okay. So I have a week to just kind of like, prepare for this. Get, get your affairs in order. <laughs> it'll be like Monday or Tuesday. Monday, Monday, or it'll be Monday or Friday next week. Yeah, wait a there. Okay, my geese bulky. I could hide a gun in there, just <laughs> long enough to get to back my way out yeah, of the gym. Good luck. I mean, back. the dude is the toughest, you know, fifty-year-old guy I I know. Oh, dude, he he, he is a fifty-year-old, thirty-year-old. It doesn't matter what age. Yeah, he's he's he can, he can break you both physically and spiritually. Yes, <laughs> and he's smarter than most people. So it's like. There's nothing left. Like, you can't say, oh, he just beat the shit out of me because he also makes you feel stupid, so. Yeah, you can't go, well, he's just some dumb meathead. You're no. right. He's a fucking doctor. Right. <laughs> he could buy me. Right. <laughs> All right, well, before we leave and you guys never hear from me again, uh, let's just finish with just, we're not going to, I'm not going to make you play D&D this week. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but let's say it doesn't mean we couldn't role play just a little bit. Okay, questions. The last time I asked, two times ago, I asked you best dinner guest. Yeah. Or who would you prefer to have a dinner guest? Let's now think about like when you're in a, like Miss America, they always have these questions for Miss America oh, that God. they'll ask. And I thought maybe I could steal steal a couple of those questions. And before I ask the questions, it's probably best to try to put ourselves in that mindset of Miss America. When, let's say you're in a beauty pageant, okay? And have you been in a beauty pageant before I do this? Have you seen me? I, I'm not going to judge. I don't know. In Brazil, no. you may be a 10. No. Okay. Well, let's just say you you just finished up. It, they they always ask this question. The questions at the end of the you're you're in the top three now. It's just you and these two girls. One's from oh. Ohio. One's from okay. Mississippi. And you're all standing up there. And I'm a dude top three in a Miss America contest. Yeah. So a man, a foreign Brazilian gorilla looking man. Yeah. Has made a top three. Yeah. I think that speaks a lot about American beauty and women, American beauty. We've, yeah, according well, to thank you. you. We've come, example. Thank you. We've come a long way in this country. And now a yeah. Brazilian, not Brazilian, sorry, American man. You are an American citizen. So you are representing the state of Indiana. So you're standing up there. You're all holding hands. You're smiling. You're I'm sorry giddy. for all the Indiana women out there. But hey, it's okay. I'm sorry. Go, that go on. They're not we'll as well-rounded as you are. Clearly. <laughs> You just nailed. You did really well in the in the in the talent section. Uh-huh. You threw a couple bitches. I did. Uh, that I'm surprised it went over well. Yeah. But they were impressed. And then that's how you eliminate the competition? Yeah, that's right. You killed the swimsuit section. I did. Now, if you're in the swim swimsuit section, what do you see yourself wearing? Are you more of a modest classical one piece, or are you kind of going with like a voluptuous kind of sexy two piece swim trunks? It's not an option here. You didn't uh, say those are my only options. Okay, well, can't change trunks. the rules now. You're changing the rules. I thought this whole thing was all right. Fine, swim <laughs> trunks. Are your swim trunks? Are they to the knee? Are they a couple inches above the knee? A couple inches above the knee. Oh, look at you. Yeah, couple. she has some leg. All right. Do you? Uh, did you tan before this? I'm always tan. <laughs> That's true. You're always you always have a nice bronze going. So you're standing up there with the women, and. It's your turn to answer a question. And they say, Mr. Gracie from Indiana. Ooh, 
we're, some of us are in the crowd because we'd support you. We're there. Thanks. You're, I appreciate you're, that, buddy. You're breaking this glass ceiling. Okay. Women have dominated this competition for so long. It's unfair. Okay. Now it's your turn. Crawler, craw, crawler. The guy's struggling because you have a kind of an unusual name. Crawler. Uh, question: If if you meet God, what would you ask slash tell him? Ask slash tell. Yeah, you could ask him, or maybe you don't want to ask a question. Maybe you want to tell him something. Why? Why what? Just why? (laughs) Just why? That's a power move with God. You're going, why? And then you just cross your arms, and and it's up to him to interpret that. I'm flexing. Although, to be fair, he's supposed to be all-knowing, so he should be able to know what you mean. Right. I'm flexing. You're flexing. Man, you are a cocky son of a bitch. Okay. See, the problem is like I beat your question. (laughs) That's really the problem here. Sure, yeah. (laughs) All right, that guy says, thank you, I think. Uh, Next question. And lady comes up. She's a former Miss America pageant winner from Idaho. And she says, "Uh, Mr. Gracie, what have you learned from the competition? That's a dangerous question. <laughs> I don't know. I'm Mr. Gracie. I mean, you just my, spent my, the last my, uh, couple hours with these my, women. My smart ass would say something that in a women's beauty contest, a man is winning. Um, you know, that that would be my smart ass self saying something. Um, if I'm playing along and I'm the contestant, I would say something like. Well, you want to win. Listen, you're representing the Hoosier state. Please. What you're saying is I can't be a smart ass. Unless you want to disappoint all right, us all. So, so if I'm not being a smartass, I would say something along like throwing bitches around, as you described earlier. That's you not disappointing us? Is the way to get rid of competition. <laughs> okay. There's only two left. So physical <laughs> violence is the way to reach your hey, goal. According to you, you know. <laughs> oh, we are so losing to Missouri or Mississippi. <laughs> and then the last question. Oh, my God. This is horrible. Do you think you're the most... We can go back to D&D. I mean, that's fine. (laughs) Oh, you prefer that? That was the goal. (laughs) Mr. Gracie, which of all the countries that you visited would you like to go back to and why? Ooh. Who am I with? Mr. Gracie, you don't ask the questions here. Listen, this this is the Miss America pageant. You don't have the authority to question the question askers, all right? So you just shut the hell up oh, and you so answer this I'm by question. myself, because um, that's what I'm assuming. So if I'm by myself, ooh, I don't know, um, that I've already been to. You've already been to. Oh. i probably stay in America. Oh, you kiss ass. Hey, you want me to win? <laughs> <laughs> you said I should win. Make Indiana proud. That's how I do that. <laughs> I mean, that is how you do that. But when you answer that, even the lady who asked the question, she like rolls her eyes. Kind of like, oh, brother. But hey, you said to win. That's the answer that would win that pageant. Okay. Well, Out they, of everything I've said, that that would do it. They, 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 they all look down and they start to whisper. And then uh, Mario Lopez walks out with the envelope and says, Did you just pick out two Mexican names? <laughs> no, Mario Lopez. No, you asshole. Mario Lopez, he's hosted those in the past. He's I've Slater from Saved by the Bell. I've never seen Saved by the Bell. You know what it is, though. I know it's a TV show, okay, like yeah. an old TV he show. He was on right? that, and they have him host it sometimes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> like how that upset you. <laughs> <laughs> so he walks out and he says, I'd like to thank all the lovely ladies for doing this. And then you're like, <clears throat> and gentlemen, today's win- tonight's winner is Mississippi. <sighs> the crowd goes wild. Yeah. And you see all of us standing there looking at you. Wow. And like, I have like a big poster that says like, Croiler, we love you. We support you. And I just kind of like, like, like drop it. And I look over and you see your wife. She turns around and she just walks out. I would, I would hope she would. And you just, you've disappointed everyone. I, I would expect I, I would, yes. That that would be what I would want them to feel. No, you'd be hurting because right now you're looking at her, at the winner going, you're pretending to be happy. You're going, oh, thank you. No, I wouldn't honor. pretend I lost. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would be respectful in her victory, but I'm sure. not going to be like, yay, you. <laughs> but you, you got runner up. So you have a, they, they do right. give you the crown, okay. a smaller right. crown, Small crown. Gotcha, and smaller gotcha. flowers. Gotcha. So 
that's you might not ever be a beauty queen but i just I wanted you to experience that for a queen. minute thank you i appreciate that it was very uncomfortable was it empowering uncomfortable very what? uncomfortable yeah well i'm sorry that but I, I think we all feel like we're proud of you i think if you were in one of those competitions you definitely wouldn't win but i, I wouldn't drop the sign i would be smiling and like cheering the whole time with the bobby pins with the bobby pins in. <laughs> I, I forgot i had them in oh Thanks. so to so take the the low road you know, for somebody who was sick two days ago mm-hmm. and somebody who has been sick for a minute, yeah, I didn't sniffle once. I didn't cough once. I, you know, I didn't have to clear my throat nope. and somebody else did. I did. But I have said, even in the last episode, <laughs> that I'm always sick. It's just part of this is how I roll. And but, I admit it all the time. But if you're always sick, then, then that's just your state of being. I know. I am a sickly human being. I, okay. That's just who I am. <laughs> so thanks for beating me down in the yeah, last no few seconds of this episode. I have a lot to think about now. Yep. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week.